Hey everybody, on this episode of Unbeatable, I get a chance to connect with a ranger buddy that I haven't talked to in a long time. This is not only an incredible warrior on the battlefield, but he's a guy who did a lot of hard work and made himself into a much better man after getting home from combat and many years of being overseas. And I think there's something that everybody can learn as you listen to this episode from Johnny Elsasser, my buddy from 2nd Ranger Battalion. Check it out. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, Johnny, thank you for joining me on this episode of Unbeatable. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I'm really honored to be on here with you and to jam out for a little bit and share with your community. Yeah. Man, we're going to do some catching up on this episode because you and I haven't seen each other or talked to each other in more than a decade, but it's good to see you again, buddy. For those of you that are watching him on YouTube or good to just hear your voice. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. I was, uh, I'll let everybody know it's really hard for me to not say Captain Struker, so I'll, I'll be focused on Jeff for the show. <laughs> yeah, please do. Just make it Jeff. I'll make it Johnny. We'll make it totally easy on the listeners that way. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, we go back a little ways. Uh, we go back to 2nd Ranger Battalion at the same time back in early 2000s. But uh, before we get into me and you serving in the same Ranger Battalion at the same time, let's go back a little bit farther with you. Let's go back to um, what life was like growing up. And because I know a little bit about your story, specifically what life was like at home when mom and dad were married and then what happened after mom and dad split up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, I tell people this to my detriment and to my success. Uh, I was very present as a kid. And so when I was going through life, especially early on, um, I really was just focused on playing with friends and like playing sports and being involved in that stuff. And so everything right. was pretty great. Like yeah. it was just Typical like a American child. Yep. Right. Exactly. It is like very blue collar family, like be in before the, the streetlights came on kind of thing and just live that kind of life and really enjoyed that. We didn't really like live in poverty, but we weren't like making a lot of money. It was basically paycheck to paycheck. So grew up in that hardworking middle-class lifestyle. And then about like 14, 15 years old, uh, ran into my parents getting divorced, which at the time, like I didn't really understand, even though I was 14, 15 years old, I just didn't understand what that all meant for my life and for their life. Yeah. And uh -huh. so that's when I kind of like still just was able to be present, focused on my sports, focused on my friends and everything else. And I started to just kind of live my life and be as much out of the house as possible. All my friends could drive and everything was great. So I would try to be out of the house as much as possible and then just focused on who I was. But in that same vein, I ended up not really knowing what I was going to do. My parents were focused on their divorce. Yeah. I ended up getting to the end of high school, not knowing where I was going to go, like had none, hadn't done anything for college. I was on a great soccer team um, and I was a very good soccer player, but I'd done nothing to set myself up for a scholarship, <laughs> like nothing. All right. Yeah. And that was, that was what led me into uh, an army recruiting office at 17 years old. So that was like my story from, you know, reaching that divorce, really finding myself and just my friends and being outside of the home, but then not having anybody to really usher me into what life looked like after high school, you know? 
Man, there's a lot of similarities between my story and yours. And I want to get to what what happens next after you're in the recruiter's office. Yeah. But, but, but if we can go back for just a second, man, lots of people, millions and millions of American kids go through uh, experience of parents' divorce. Mm-hmm. For a lot of them, it sticks with them for a lifetime. For some of them, it kind of rolls with the punches. But for the kids that have never, for the people that are listening that have kind of never gone through that, why did this impact you so much? Because some some kids just roll with it. Others, it's a catastrophic event in their life. Yeah, absolutely. And it does. It's got that like dichotomy of like, it can be one or the other for a lot of people. And for me, it Uh affected me a lot because the fact that, um, it, it pushed me into my own autonomy. My parents couldn't really, they weren't mature enough in their own individuality to understand that the kids, like especially myself, my brother was a couple years older than me. So he was already like borderline at college. Uh-huh. He had already a lot of development. I was like early years yeah. of high school and my sister was very young. And so they, I don't think they had that level of maturity in themselves to understand that we still needed a lot of like ushering in life. And so it impacted me a lot because I had to find my own autonomy because I didn't really want to be around that environment um, just because they didn't really know what was going on with themselves. And I was like, okay, well, let me find who I am and just stay away from that. And honestly, what was really interesting, Jeff, is that like, and some people would think this is really weird. I was, I was fortunate enough that I had somebody who was a big influence in my life, which was my uncle and my uncle still to this day, he and I are very close. And one of the interesting cool. thing though, is that he had, they had, my aunt, and my uncle had three boys and I was very close with all of them. And they said, Hey, come stay at the house. So I would come to the house, but they didn't have like a spare bedroom for me. They were packed. So we actually put a, <laughs> we put a tent. All right. We put a tent in the backyard and. Oh yes. I love it. <laughs> I say, and I love that you love that because most people would be like, Oh my God, you were a kid yeah. in a tent. And I was like, no, I was no a- <laughs> man. Hey, why don't you come hang out with us? But you're going to have to sleep in the yard in a tent right. which for a 14 year old boy. That's pretty cool right there. I know. And it was great. So I was fortunate enough that like my, aunt and uncle, I was in a great environment with them because I love them. I love my cousins. Um, we were all close in age. So I was able to get a lot of connection there. And and then I also had kind of some autonomy being in the tent in the backyard and being able to like have my uncle who yeah, was Yeah, because it's mentor. your tent. I can do what I want in my tent in your backyard. <laughs> yep, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And my uncle who was like my mentor was still there to guide me along the way. So that I think really helped soften the blow. And to any kids out there, anybody experiencing that, like that's one of the things I can say is like, look to those mentors mentors, they don't necessarily have to be your parents that can influence yeah, you in the right direction. Definitely. How long were you in the tent? How long did you stay out there you know, in the backyard? I was, it was between about, I can't remember the exact time frame, but it was between about six to six months to about a year. I was actually back there for in high school, uh, like hanging out and it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> I'm impressed, man. No wonder why you did well in the <laughs> army and in the Ranger Regiment. If you can suck up a summer and a winter in a tent in the backyard, man, it, it shows a little bit about how tough you are. Yeah, yeah. So what prompts you to go? Obviously, life is just tossed upside down when mom and dad divorced. Right. And you don't have to go to a recruiter's office. What pushed you into a U.S. Army recruiter's office? 
Well, you know, I'll take us back for one second. It was really very interesting. So this was this was early 2000s and it was before like internet was like mainstream stuff. So people weren't surfing the internet. We didn't have yeah. like this we didn't have the smartphones. Like it wasn't that. And I had a one of my best friends came up to me and he says he just starts talking about special operations. And I knew nothing about this. I didn't have a military pedigree whatsoever. Really? Yeah, he just a friend from school. Yeah, a friend from school just started talking. He goes, he goes, "Have you heard okay. of these guys like special forces and like army rangers and navy seals?" And I was like, "I haven't heard." I mean, I knew of like navy seals and special forces from movies, but I was like, "I don't know what they do. I don't even like know how you go to be yeah. them." And uh, I started looking at them and I actually really didn't care for like the background or the training of like what the SEALs and the special forces did. But I loved the Army Rangers. I was like, oh, if I was going to go, that really? would that would be something cool to do. And uh, I ended up in an Army recruiting office. And that was because my mother at the time, she was dating a gentleman who had been in the Air Force. And he talked about the military. And he's like, hey, you don't know what you're doing. You haven't signed up for college. Why don't you just go talk to them and see what they have to offer? And I was like, okay, whatever. So I go in there and talk to them. And I figured I could talk to them about being a ranger. And as you know, it's it's not really that way because they just want you to go where they need That's you. Right. <laughs> yep. That's right. You you go where the army needs you. Exactly. Yeah. And at the time, we were really hot in Fallujah because this is roughly around 2004. So we were hot in Fallujah, both the Marines and the army were hot in Fallujah. And so they wanted to push me to a unit called third ID, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Uh -huh. um, they wanted to get yeah, me in very third. Familiar with it. Great dude. <laughs> right. Exactly. They wanted to put me in the broken TV and they said, Hey man, we're going to uh, sign <laughs> you up for, for the infantry and go to third ID. And they were like, Hey, um, I was like, well, what about Rangers? Like, how do I go to one of the battalions? How do we become an army ranger? They're like, oh, just go to your unit and then you can talk to them about that and then they'll get you there. And I was like, and as you know, yeah, that's not how right. that works either. That's right. <laughs> so that was how I ended up in the army recruiting office. I didn't know where I was going. Uh, I had somebody who had spoken to me about it. I gave it a shot and being present, I, I was just kind of like, I'll take what comes for me. And I grew up in that blue collar family, that blue collar mindset. So I had yeah. grit. And I was a very good athlete, so I had the potential to do anything in the military physically, right? And so I was like, I'll give it a shot and see where this all takes me. You know, that was kind of like the exploration phase. That's interesting because when I'm standing in a recruiter's office, I'm still a senior in high school. I got no idea, like you, what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I had a buddy whose dad said, Jeff, if you're really thinking about this, like I think you ought to uh, reconsider. But if you're really seriously thinking about this, Go work with the toughest, the best people in the military. And he, he didn't point out the Rangers, but he basically said, go try out for the elite forces and mm. go see how that goes. Um, and that's what brought me to a recruiter's office. Like you, the recruiter's <laughs> like, we can't make you a Ranger, but we can totally send you, you know, to Germany or yeah. to some infantry unit. But this recruiter did a little bit of research and he said, hey, look, man, there is a way if you can get if we can get you into the U.S. Army's airborne course, there's a way that you can volunteer. At that point, it's all on you, mm. but we'll hook you up and we'll get you there. And I was like, OK, man, I'll take whatever I can get because I couldn't get that guaranteed contract to try out. Yeah. And so um, it sounds like you were pretty. Uh, strong pretty <laughs> tough mentally but also in great shape if you played soccer yeah uh you know in school yeah and so 
Tell me about, um, you know, going through all of the training before you end up as a private in second ranger battalion. Well, this is, this to me is the most fascinating part of my story because it was like divine yeah. intervention for me. So I, I had talked about going to be a ranger. I tried to get it. They, they suckered me into getting into the military and, and in my, in my, yeah. <laughs> in my contract, it says I'm going to third ID after basic training. And I was just going through and, you know, just being able to be a PT stud, I stood out And one of my drill sergeants who to this day, and this is, I cannot overstate the importance of mentors in our lives and to be, yeah, to, to just be aware that they can come in all shapes and sizes. Just be aware that they're there. And I'm in basic training, getting my butt kicked. And one of the guys that's there is drill sergeant Paul. And he was fair. Yeah, everyone remembers our drill sergeant's name, by the way. So it doesn't surprise yep. me that you not only told me who it was, but you gave me his name. Yep, exactly. And and drill sergeant Paul, he was fair, but he was harsh because he wanted to see who who could be elite because he actually would go out of his way to try to help you get there. Well, I didn't know this at the time, but he had seen me and he had been paying attention and he was like, I come, I, I get out of chow one day and he goes, Hey, El Assassin. He's got this North Carolina accent. And this is just hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Always called me El Assassin. Hey, El Assassin, come here. And I was like, Oh crap, dude, what did I do? You never, you know this, you never want to get yelled at by a drill sergeant because yeah. it's just always trouble. Yeah. So, uh, I get over there and I'm like, yeah, drill sergeant. And he goes, Hey, what do you want? You want, ranges you want snipers you want special forces where you want to go and i was like uh army rangers drill sergeant and he goes all right get upstairs so i get upstairs about the next day same thing happens i get out of chow and uh he calls me over again pulls out a piece of paper it's a brand new contract going to airborne school and then rip what i'm not kidding wow you. not kidding you that's yeah. incredible <laughs> pulls this out and has me sign the new contract on his back and then takes it in and puts me in. And the next thing you know, wow, boom, I'm in. I go to airborne school and then I hit rip, uh, made it through rip. Yeah. And I was in another, it was another divine thing for me. So being a California boy, uh, there's only three battalions. You know this. First and third are in Georgia. Uh -huh. And then I'm going to, and I wanted to go to second Ranger Battalion over in Washington, naturally, closer to home. Out in the West Coast. Yeah. yeah. So I get I get into the you know how they pick they're like all right get in the line behind the battalion and then they'll yep. move they'll right. they'll cut it off wherever because they know how many each battalion can take and uh, they literally cut off second ranger battalion at me so the guy behind me gets moved over wow <laughs> yeah yeah the guy behind me gets moved over to uh, I believe it was third bat. Uh, to go, you know, yeah, stay in, yeah. stay in Benning, and I literally just right behind me, and I was like, oh wow! So I ended up. That's how I ended up in Second Ranger Battalion, then ended up in in your uh, sphere of influence. Yeah, yeah. So I showed up to Second Ranger Battalion a little bit before you, yeah. but I think we spent a good part of your career in the army together. Mm -hmm. Um, hey, by the way, for the listener who just heard him say rip, that doesn't stand for rest in peace, although there's a whole lot of people that just crash and, and burn in. And while they're in the Ranger indoctrination program, now called the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program, it's the thing that guys go through to try out for the Ranger Regiment and the attrition rate is high. Mm -hmm. So I don't even need to tell the listener that Johnny <laughs> is a rock solid warrior just to get there. But then the guys that get there, 
the workload and the operational tempo and how dangerous the job is, it just burns through people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people get broken. A lot of people can't handle it. Johnny, you stay there for several years, do four combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and you, you have this unusual, um, experience. So you know what it was like to go to combat as a private, Mm -hmm. then you get promoted a couple of times and you become a leader and you go back to combat as a squad leader. Yeah. And I just thought it would be a good, uh, it would be good for the listeners to understand just how different that first combat deployment was as a private versus maybe your last one as a ranger squad leader. Yeah. Um, can you kind of describe the differences of those two? Oh, I love this question because I've never like actually thought about it in the sense of like putting it out on a podcast, but this will be oh, great. Oh man, to- I was there too. So <laughs> I mean, I kind of have an idea of what, what, what the difference was like. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's a pretty, it's pretty wild. The, the difference between when you're there as a private and then obviously there as a leader. And, you know, as a private, I I can literally remember my first mission and sitting on after we squared away all the vehicles and prepped everything. And we we literally hit the ground. I think we hit the ground about dusk and we were already hitting our first mission that night. It was uh, probably a few hours later. We had. Where was. Hold on for just a second. Where was your what theater was your first combat operation in? So we were up in northern Iraq, Mosul. Okay, so you were in Iraq, up in Mosul, Iraq at the time, yep. about or in that general area. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. So keep going. We sit there and literally like that night we we are hitting the ground running and I'm sitting there on ammo cans. It's my first mission as a private and all that's going through my head is literally like don't mess up your fundamentals. Like just walk through right. everything you That's know right. and just come, yeah. just keep doing that. And so I sat there and this was before I knew anything about visualization. This was just me like this was my way of yeah. almost kind of calming that um, anxiety, calming that like, you know, yeah. anticipation of chaos, right? And um, it was going to be for real. But I mean, obviously, you know this, we trained very highly in training before we get to theater. So it was it was pretty, uh-huh. pretty easy once you step into that. But that's all I was thinking. And then on top of that, it's like, it's kind of miserable being a private. Like you, you get back and you have all these other... <laughs> It, it's the toughest job in the military, hands yeah. down. Being a private in a ranger battalion, it doesn't get any more difficult than that. No, like you have all these other duties, plus you're still getting smoked yep. when you mess up. Plus like you yep. still gotta like get all the little things done that take care of not just you, but take care of any of the specialists, takes care of the sergeants, takes care of the squad yeah. and the platoon. Like all of the things that you're doing as a private that you did back in the rear, you still do overseas. They just look a little different. And you still have the yeah. inflection of being smoked when you mess stuff up. And so right. there, it's like there's no that I think that's one of the things with spec ops is there's no foot off the gas. There's never like a oh that's well. Right. we're here yeah. like there's none because there's such a high standard and a low uh margin for error you know when you're at that level and yeah. so as a private uh there's a lot of days where you're sitting there like wow do, do i really want this that bad like i am getting the crap yeah. kicked out of yeah. me like what did i get myself yeah. into right everybody asked that question yep. what did i just get myself into there was days i used to think about rip like wow that was easy compared to this 
Like that was of course, really yeah, easy. It was. And uh, it just, it didn't let up. So there was a lot there. There was a lot involved from having to prep, not only equipment, but prep yourself. You still had to work out every day. You still had to like man some of the, some of the uh, posts that were on maybe one or two deployments. There was like the ability where we still in our like little area, we had to man uh, certain yeah. fire posts basically. Yeah, had to provide your own protection, right? Correct, pretty much. And that was also part of the added uh, <laughs> complexity of being a Stress private. Stress of the job. Right, yeah. little sleep. Yeah. So that added to it. And then the difference with being a squad leader was your job, like you were sitting there being like, how do I make sure that I bring everybody home? How do I make sure that I set That's these right. guys up for success yeah. so that when chaos happens, they all know exactly what to do. They know how to do the, the job of the guy ahead of them and they can make sure that they're trained to the highest level so they're not losing their life and nobody around them is. And like you're really obsessed yeah. with that as, as in my opinion, as a squad leader um, or as any as a team leader as well. You're obsessed with like, OK, I'm training these guys hard because I don't want them to have some that's fatal right. accident. Yeah. Right. And, uh, right. That yeah. I mean, ultimately the job of a leader in combat is to, to bring, uh, defeat the enemy, accomplish the mission, but bring your guys home. Exactly. And the ability to bring them home is largely determined by how hard you train before you go over there. Mm -hmm. Because once you're there, you're there. Um, and whatever happens next happens next. So, um, yeah, man, I like you did many, many deployments. Yeah. Um, my first deployment, I was a squad or a team leader. Um, and I, I really only had myself to work, uh, look out for because I was on a team of nothing but NCOs. Mm. But as a private, you're not only making sure that you don't do anything um, wrong and compromise the mission, but you're also making sure that you don't hold your unit back. Right. Well, it's, it's, I asked the question because, Johnny, you know, it's almost the exact same coin, just the opposite side of it. As a squad leader, team leader, as a leader in combat, now you're thinking the exact same thing, but you're thinking about it times five, times ten. Yeah times 50 or 500 or 50,000, depending on the level that you're leading at. And man, the intensity never slows down. It, mm -hmm. uh, it remains uh, being uh, in special operations and combat. It never lets up. No, no, no. Especially no, no. in a unit as disciplined and that has as many, that goes out on as many objectives as a unit like the Ranger Regiment. Mm -hmm. So... Man, I just got to tell you, it was an honor to serve with guys like you. Thank you for serving the country. But your service to our country doesn't end when you leave the Ranger Regiment and leave the Army. You transition and keep serving mm -hmm. and now serving as a contractor working around U.S. embassies and even worse, around U.S. ambassadors <laughs> in the height of the big fight in Iraq. So tell us about serving um, as a contractor over in Iraq and other, the the three ambassadors that you worked with. Yeah. And, and I would like to say thank you, Jeff. Like you, you provided a lot of stability, oh, especially when we were there as, as like at the time you were chaplain and it was amazing to have you there to kind of hold because you had seen and been through a lot of intense stuff yeah, in your career by that point. And it was it was really great to have you as somebody in our corner and also as as a, a stability feature for us. So thank you for that as well in your service, Jeff. 
Really, really grateful for that. When it came to protecting ambassadors, uh, this was a very, very different job. Um, And the whole thing was we went from, you know, Ranger Battalion where we're playing offense, right, to now doing protection where you're playing defense. Like you don't want anything. And to the extreme, right? Yeah. Uh, Like you you have to protect him from every single uh, spot on, you know, where he goes. Exactly. And like you're and and the thing is, is we had uh, we had one ambassador where he was. He was former special forces. So there was a place there wasn't any place he didn't want to go. Oh, I can only imagine what that was like. <laughs> he was he was one of the only ambassadors. He carried a pistol in his briefcase and he actually called on his pistol uh-huh. so he was able to carry that All with right. him per state department standards and he uh yeah. he was amazing. I loved him, but he also wanted to go any and everywhere. He was like he didn't care. Which made your life miserable, right? 100%. When we would go to places like yeah. Sodder City at the time, Sodder, you knew this, Sodder ran like kind of this his yeah. own place. And it was his jurisdiction. Right. And uh, we would go to Sodder City. And one of the times we went there, he wanted to go speak with him. And literally, I think it was just about maybe 30 days before that, maybe less, a British principal uh-huh. had been killed. In Sodder City, blown up, shot, killed, and yeah. his team. Yeah. And we're like, oh, that's our intel. And it's literally just under Sodder's <laughs> control. And you're just like, all right. Yeah. Well, we got to make this work. So we got to figure it out. Um, that's right. So it was very different to be on a defensive minded mission tempo and then also to plan your missions according to that, too. And when you're yeah. experiencing yeah. that, you don't have a choice of saying no because the ambassador's like, I'm going. Right. So your your job is how do I make it happen and how do I make it happen? So, Mm -hmm. so well that I protect not only this principle, but I also protect my entire team. Right. And so that becomes a whole that becomes a whole dynamic in and of itself because it's some it's a lot of the principles of being in Ranger Battalion. But then there's a whole added element to this where you're looking for, yeah. you're just sitting ducks really in a lot of cases. You're like, how like, how can I best do this to where I'm like uh, a sitting duck they don't really want to approach? Like, so that was, yeah. that was kind of the dynamic there. But doing it for three different ambassadors was very interesting because you have different mindsets, different ways of handling the politics. Diff- yeah, different personalities. Yeah. Yeah. And I was there when they negotiated the nuclear treaty with the Iranians. I was there when uh, Maliki uh, would not give up power yeah. to, um, uh-huh. I can't remember uh, what, his, what his other name was. Alawi, I think Alawi was the other one. And Maliki would not give uh-huh. his power up and he lost the, he lost the, um, the votes but yet Alexa. they ended up yeah. having to create like two prime ministerships. It was very interesting times. Right. So I was there for all of that and had to kind of negotiate, obviously, like what that was like as far as being security in that present. Because there, there was a different um, level. Uh, it was very interesting. There was I noticed a different level of relationship with Maliki because Maliki had his own private army where they used to be very inviting to us. But then when he lost the election to Alawi and the U.S. ambassador would go to talk to Maliki about all these things, their security yeah. posture changed towards us. And we had to be very aware <laughs> of this. So I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I ask you that question because Part of the job of securing an ambassador, taking care of doing the defense that you just called it, nobody ever 
pat you on the back or recognizes mm -hmm. when you do your job right. But if you do your job wrong and something happens, it's on the front page of every newspaper on the planet. International and incident. The pressure that goes along with that job, you can just never, ever slip up. Nope. And uh, that kind of pressure is really hard to live under. So the fact that you did that for five years, I got mad respect. Man. <laughs> Thank you, John. Appreciate um, that. But there's a point where you kind of transition away from the military, no longer contracting. And I think it's fascinating. You called it an extremely arduous transition. Mm -hmm. Almost every special operations guy that I know says similar language. Like, yeah. I thought it was going to be easy to transition, but it's not. Yeah. So what made this transition extremely arduous? Why was it so hard for you to transition away from that lifestyle? It was, uh, you know, it was very difficult because what had built me into the man that I was at that time, a lot of that didn't serve me to transition into the quote unquote real world. And part of that was the fact that like, you know, I was living in, in hostile environments where you're looking at threats all the time. You're classifying people yeah. by their body language and perspective perspective and also the environment in you're in. And when you come home and you still have that mindset, it really causes a fracture in how you can even relate to people that are around. And so it that was part of it. And then the other part was the arduous was the fact that like you had to come to terms that you had to start questioning your own mindset. You had to start questioning yeah. the way you saw the world. And in that questioning, you had to take ownership of some of the limitations of some of the beliefs that you had and had to tell yourself like, well, is this serving me now? Is this actually helping me yeah. be a better man in the world today? And the hard part is, especially when you come from that elite background is you already know how strong you are, how strong your foundation is. And you've already become this yeah, principle, right. this very principled man. But then you're like, holy crap. If I keep the same mindset of that man, there's a chance I'm going to have zero friends. I'm going to constantly look at everybody yeah. as a threat. I'm going to fracture relationships because I'll have not a lot of emotional intelligence because I haven't looked at my own emotions. And you're like, wow, I'm going to start having a lot of toxic relationships here. And that's what I ended up experiencing. Yeah. That was part of that is because you're now you're not fighting anymore. This external force, you're actually fighting this internal force. And you're, you're having to right. have that battle internally and you know the truth. You can't lie to yourself. So that becomes the conflict. Yeah. I, I want to pump the brakes here for just a second because you're talking about something that is extremely important. I think that there are listeners right now that are going through a arduous transition mm -hmm. like you and I went through. But I also think there's a lot of people that are like, I don't get it. Why would this be so difficult? So Johnny, you have you're describing really well now the things that made you successful in combat were your ability to shut things, parts of you down yeah. and to focus and to function and not to basically be a normal human being while you're over there. Those things kept you alive yeah. while you're on the battlefield. But when you leave the battlefield, those things that kept you alive that were very good things yep. and don't get me wrong it doesn't mean that you or i or the brothers and sisters in arms did anything wrong overseas right. but those things that served you well and kept you alive on the battlefield are now harming you yep. and holding you back in times of peace and there are countless 
men and women that I know who said, the only thing I'm good at is killing. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm not in war anymore, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Some of them, it's so traumatic that they decide, I don't want to live anymore. I'm going to do the one thing that I'm good at. I'm going to put a pistol in my mouth and I'm going to end it all. Because I guess the only thing that I'm made for is war. And now I have to live in peacetime. Mm-hmm. So again, I pumped the brakes for just a second. So you can go back and describe just in a little bit more detail yeah. for listeners right now, how challenging the things that made you successful on the battlefield are now hurting your abilities to integrate into society and have healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Can you go into a little bit more detail Yeah, absolutely. for people that have never gone through this arduous transition. Well, one of the pieces that you carry is judgment, right? And you judge a lot of other people's and people and environments in that. And that's what I carried. I struggled with that. And if you hold that judgment, especially coming out of that environment, you can't create relationships that are fruitful. You can't create relationships that are connective. And because the fact you're constantly looking at ways to judge people. And from there, you're just criticizing every move they have. But also I was holding a lot of people do this uh, from the elite aspect, but from the military too, is even in the general military, there's a higher level of standard for people, right? Than the everyday person, the average person. And so all of a sudden you're put into this pool of people where their standards are way below yours. And you're like, how do I assimilate to this? Like, how do I connect with this? This is this is like to some aspects, it's like it's almost insulting. You're like, these people have no concept yeah. of this standard. And when you start measuring other people to this standard, you start realizing there's very few people that are going to meet that. And then you That's start, right. yeah. you start yeah. hermit crabbing in and you start isolating yourself. And what happens is all of those a majority of those relationships you had from the military or from protection from the paramilitary groups. What happens is uh, distance creates distance and we're not great at constantly yeah. staying in that, connection. That needs to be said yeah. again for somebody <laughs> who's driving and missed that one because it's absolutely true. Say that one yeah. one more time. Distance creates distance. And that is something that we as, as humans and, and we as people who've come out of the military or these environments, we're not great at keeping those flames of relationship alive with people that we served yeah. with, even for decades. And all of a sudden, we're now isolated. We have almost no friends. We have potentially maybe a spouse or a partner, but they can't handle a lot of potentially what we've gone through. And right. to share with them could bring them down. You don't want, and most of us don't want to do that. So we isolate and then we self medicate and then we start to self criticize. Yeah. We criticize and then we start to beat up on every move that we make. And then we start to be like, oh, I used to be capable of this. And now I'm just sitting behind a desk pressing buttons. So all of this compiles and compiles and, and just creates this, this large heaping trash of, of self-loathing. And this is where the transition becomes difficult because you have a standard you're not meeting. You have judgment that you're holding against everybody else. You have criticism of yourself because you're not meeting the standard. Then you also have isolated yourself from friends and family, people who who, uh, can't understand why you're the way you are once you get back home. And all of that mindset just holds you back from a lot of this connection. And so 
that creates the difficulty. I hope that kind of explains it a lot better for people out there. What you just described is that's where the distance comes in. And the distance is not necessarily geographic. It's just the space between two people that might be in the same house, even sleeping in the same bed, but they're in totally different worlds because one of them is really struggling to, um, you know, process and to, um, get connected and relate to people well again you're you're actually describing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of warriors that are going through the same thing that you've went through i went through many others have gone through yeah but i, I wanted to camp on this one for a second yeah. johnny because i know this part of your story um one of my good friends i had a chance to do an episode with him he is a legendary ranger And his name is J.B. Spizo. And Mm J.B. said, man, I could handle anything the army threw at me, anything the enemy threw at me. And then there was a moment that I went through a divorce. Mm -hmm. And I found myself, this is J.B.'s own words, laying on the floor in the fetal position, crying uncontrollably, and I can't get off the floor. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of man am I that I can't or can't handle the pain of divorce. And JB just laid out for everybody how challenging this was. I know a little bit about your story, Johnny. So I want you to talk about how that distance impacted your relationship and how it really ended up in divorce. But more importantly, would you tell everybody what happened to you as a result of that divorce? Yeah. I mean, this is this is a powerful part. And JB is a legendary, a legendary human. I, I love JB. Um, but He's right. Like I struggled with my own ability, inability to transfer the pertinent skills that I had to the regular life and leave some of the skills that were holding me back behind. And so I started to drink way too much. I was living for the weekend. I wasn't paying attention to my wife at the time. Uh, our relationship was getting that distance we were isolating yeah. each other. And, and this was, this was a crazy thing. She'd be up on the middle floor and I'd be down on the bottom floor and I'd be like watching football or something. She'd be up watching a TV show. And as you said, we're in the same house, but we're distant. We're distant emotionally. We're distancing yeah. ourselves yeah. physically. We couldn't yeah. have the conversations and communication that could have helped us, um, to keep that relationship alive. And so as I continued to live for the weekend and just drink on my back deck and cook on the barbecue and not pay as much attention to her, we started to have a worse and worse relationship that ended up culminating in a divorce. And I don't know if many people know this, but you know, when you're in the top 1% of being elite, you pride yourself on being a man that can endure, that can endure and can make things like you can can handle (laughs) pain and hardship. You can handle pain, hardship. Your sacrifice is nothing to you. Like you are a man of all men, right? Like that's the embodiment that you have of yourself, but then you end up in a divorce and that is like, there's almost nothing you can imagine as more of a failure. You couldn't keep a family together. You couldn't keep a relationship together. And that hit me really hard. Um, Just like JB, I was struggling with the fact like, who was I? I was elite at this one point going overseas and hunting terrorists. I was protecting U.S. ambassadors. And now I was a failed man that was just drinking way too much who didn't like who he saw in the mirror and ended up in a divorce that he couldn't keep a relationship together. And he promised that he would, right? He broke a promise. And all of that hit me to be wow, okay, man, like either you need 
to start changing and get back to something that resembles the man you used to be. Or you can go down this elite path of being an elite piece of crap. Like you can do one or the other. Yeah. So wow. you can either be yeah. an elite piece of crap or you can be an elite human again, elite man again. But you got to make that decision now because I was tired of it. I was so sick and tired of looking in the mirror and not recognizing the guy I saw. Yeah. So yeah, that was, that was where that turned. Describe how bad that divorce shook up your identity. And really, this is setting us up now for people to learn what you learned about yourself, about masculinity through this divorce, through the transition out of the military in this divorce. I mean, describe just a little bit about how it shook your identity and forced you to start to look for uh, who you are and and forge a new identity, basically. Yeah, it it, it really challenged me as a man because I, I I again my uncle was also my my mentor and he was a strong man in and of himself and you know there was a very big tie to God and to religion growing up and to yeah. have that failed yeah. marriage also shook that part of me too and so I was sitting there and just broken down and living in this little ratty apartment in Virginia at the time. And just thinking to myself, like mm -hmm. your choice right now is to do something, anything, one thing that can give you some form of connection back to yourself. And for me, it was the gym, right? So going back to the elite status of being physical, I was like, yeah. do a bodybuilding show. That was my goal. And I put my All mind, right. I put yeah. my mind to a bodybuilding show and I delivered on that because I knew that if I put a, if I put a flag in the sand, I'm going to get to that flag. And so I did. And for me, that was the first climb out of this because at the end of the day, I had, if I didn't have a goal, I was going to continue the spiral. I knew that I was so broken right. at that point. I didn't know who I was as a man. I didn't have my standards that I used to have. I had like my foundational morals, but the standards I used to have were yeah. drifting. Right. And so when I was like, well, give yourself the standards that you used to have, which was elite. All right, do a bodybuilding show. So I showed up right. and yeah. did that. And I, and I gave myself 12 weeks to prep. I had a coach and I started to say, okay, this is my climb out. Nice. Cut off alcohol, focused, because you can't do that during bodybuilding, focused on strictly doing bodybuilding yeah. and eating the right way and showed up on stage 12 weeks later and did, uh, took third, but did really, really well for, for what I thought. And I thought I looked great. So Third place in 12 weeks <laughs> yeah. is very impressive. And, yeah. And uh, I, I loved it and I looked great and I felt great. And I was like, that was a win for me. For me, that was the one foot yeah. forward where I needed, where I tapped, I touched that elite soldier again. I touched that elite man again. And I was like, yeah. okay, there's standards yeah. here. There's standards that you, you remember. And so from there, I still had a lot of the judgment that I carried around. And I still had a lot of that negativity towards other people and their standards. But at the time, uh, I had a good friend who's now my gorgeous wife. She threw me a book and that was Excuses Be Gone by Dr. the late and great Dr. Wayne Dyer. <laughs> All right. All yeah. I look at the book and naturally I say, I'm not going to read this crap because who is he to tell me how to be a man? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm former spec ops. I'm former all this. Like, who is this guy? So I still had that judgment. And it took a couple months later. I was like, Johnny, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Okay. 
You got to do something. There's a good quote right there too. Yeah. If nothing changes, nothing changes. You got to do something different. And so I went back uh, and grabbed the book and I said, all right, I'm going to read this. I'm going to give it a shot because I don't want to continue to be this man with the failed marriage. I don't want the same future uh, that I yeah, that I have right. right now. And so I read the book and it was like a punch in my gut because the way he writes is very direct, but very eloquent. And you're like, oh man, I cannot run from myself anymore. All <laughs> yeah, these things are right. insecurities. And then you had to come yeah. to realize like, oh crap, all these things that I thought were strengths were insecurities. And that shook my foundation of like, oh, I got to reframe some things. I got to really question this. Well, obviously, some of the listeners have already connected the dots. I asked you about your parents' divorce because of how much it shook you. And then when you go through a divorce, it's ground shaking. Yeah. But actually, on in your case, there's some a lot of good that comes out of it on the other side. You and I both know a lot of people that go through what you went through and they turn to the pills, to the bottle, or yeah. worse, to a pistol. But man, you learn some things. You learn some very powerful things as a result of that divorce, that book, and just rethinking who you are as a man. I mean, you actually redefined your opinions of masculinity. Yeah. And now is where we get into the meat of who you are and what you're doing now. So would you tell some people what you learned about the art of masculinity going through this whole process? But also, would you describe some of the really bad ways that society pushes guys or the bad descriptions of masculinity that a lot of guys are getting out there? Yeah, this is a great question. And and the first thing I have to say is like before I even start, when I when I read that book, the next challenge to that was the fact that it shook and it caused me to have to reframe, but I took it as a challenge to myself. I wanted to create strengths out yeah, of weaknesses. Good for you. And that yeah. was like for me being somebody who who held himself to a very high standard, who persevered through all these things. I said, all right, well, I'm going to challenge myself to turn these weaknesses into a strength. And that was my whole goal. That set me on a different trajectory. Having that perspective was what really pushed me to be like, I'm going to learn everything I can and then do the reframing and do the uh, introspection to help me grow as a man. And so I dove into this and I started to consume everything I could first on self-development and then I was having right. a conversation with uh, my friend at the time, again, my wife now. Uh, I was having a conversation with her and I was like, oh my God, like so many of the men I talked to overseas, I started thinking about the conversations and they were like, they'd be happy, Jeff, to be in the Middle East after coming home, after yeah, coming back That's right. from home, yeah. being with their wives and their kids. And I'm like, guys, what is going on? And yeah, right. I started to think about this at the time, at this time. And I was like, oh my God, if I was struggling with all this and they were struggling with all this and none of us were talking about it, how do we get this perspective to start being opened up so we yeah. can create healthy, strong men? Because these guys are the, the strength in masculinity that we need to stand up to, to right. like the people that are trying to push men around or push society around. We need those good men to stand up, but they also need to find themselves first. And yeah, so I was like, well, how do we do this? And this is where I came up with the podcast because my background, I was like, well, enough guys will give me some respect to say, hey, let me listen to him for five minutes. 
So I was like, if they're going to give me five minutes, I need to deliver. And so I was like, I got to consume everything. And by this point, I had accumulated three degrees, pretty much a fourth degree from, from the State Department by becoming a contracting officer. Wow. So yeah. I was yeah. I was great at researching, needless to say. And I was like, let me research <laughs> yeah, and consume. Definitely. So I did that and I started to read books sociologically on masculinity and how some of the studies have gone about and what they've come up with and things that really how we form who we are as men. Because if we can't understand how we form it, we can't understand how to go back and reframe it to be authentic with who right. we are as a man and how we stand in our own presence today. And so I started to consume that information, go through it. I started to read a lot on how we can rewire the brain neurologically through Dr. Joe Dispenza and epigenetics uh -huh. through uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton. And I was very avid in consuming that information so I could pass it along to men and say, listen, it's not an old dog can't learn new tricks. It's an old dog unwilling to learn new tricks right. won't learn new tricks. Yeah, that's right. But every man can learn how to reframe if he's willing to give himself the time and the practice. So... I started to see this and then I started to see that there was this attack on masculinity and that was from, you know, these terms like toxic masculinity, which is, it's an embarrassment yeah. to the English language in my, in my opinion, because it's, it, you're, if you go to etymology, toxicity means unfit for consumption. You're saying masculinity is not fit for society and that's completely wrong. Right. You know, and so these things that people were using to bully men and to confuse men and to uh, really shake their foundations challenged me again because I was like, oh, heck no. Like I'm going to stand up and fight against this and I'm going right. to stand up and yeah. fight against this by giving men like a fighter would. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to stand up and fight against this. And how am I going to do that? I'm not going to do it alone. I'm going to help build men. I'm going to help build men to really yeah. trust in their foundation, trust in their authenticity. So when this comes up to their doorstep, they're able to stand and own who they are as a, a positive, good, healthy man in this world and be able to influence this uh, negative connotation of masculinity and push it back. And so through that, that's where I started to create the art of masculinity because there's a, yeah. a, there's a development of masculinity that is an art. There are a number of traits that I believe reside in masculinity and in men. And in any man, an accumulation of those traits can make him a good, strong man in this world. Yeah. And not every accumulation of those traits looks the same in every man. And so right. it's really just finding that authenticity in some of those and then putting those into your foundation, holding those, and then presenting those through your actions and through your words. And that's what I've started to help men really find in their lives and really start to cultivate yeah. and create. That's where the word art comes from, right? Because Absolutely. it's not the same for every guy in every circumstance. No. It's different. We're all different. But masculinity, when it's done right, is powerful. It's healthy. It's actually a very beautiful thing for society. It's the best. When masculinity is done wrong, man, it is catastrophic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it just hurts yep. everybody around it when masculinity is confused. So yep. when did you launch the Art of Masculinity podcast? How old is it? Uh, that was back in about two, I want to say I got serious about the uh, August of 2018, where we, I think I launched it in 2018, but then August. Oh, you're an OG podcaster, yeah. <laughs> man. I was, uh, I was like 2000, the August, I was like, no, 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 no. I'm again, the challenge. I'm dedicated to this now. And it was yeah. like, I showed up, you know, no matter what. 
And so that was, that was when I really started to get behind it, um, in my own personality and development and be like, okay, this is part of who I am now. And so about then August, I started it and started to really just grow and expand on it and started, it caused, it pushed me to continue my research. It pushed me to continue accumulating knowledge because I never want to under deliver. You know, this, like there's that standard again, like, yeah, man, absolutely. I never want to under deliver for people. And I want to make sure that I'm giving the best information that I can. And I'm not going to try to influence them to think like me, but I want to give them things to think about and to consider on their own and challenge their own perspective with. And so in all of that, I ended up reframing, and you asked me this question a little earlier, I wanna make sure I address it, is that I ended up reframing even the man that I was, and I created a core uh, value of traits in who I am that were centered around four pieces, which was intelligence, communication, protector, and empathy. And I solidified in those in my foundation because if I can present myself that way in every conversation, if I can present myself that way in every interaction, I am... 100% consistent with who I am. And I'm not going to leave that conversation or that environment with shame, guilt, and regret. And that's most of the pain that men carry. And I wanted to relieve myself from that. And part of that means you got to cut some things out of your life. And potentially that means if guys act a fool when they're on alcohol, because they can't understand, like you can have one drink and you don't have to have 20. Right. That means that if you're not going to own that man, when you're drinking, you probably shouldn't be drinking. And that was just my perspective. So that is well said right there, man. Yep. Totally agree. And that was it. I love the fact that you've, you've dug deep enough that you were able to identify, you know, kind of your big four areas of who I am as a man. And I'm going to show up with all four of these areas, wherever I go, whatever I do, obviously like a true special operator, you deliver more (laughs) than you promise but you take it steps farther than just the Art of Masculinity podcast. So you develop the wild man experience and then the elite man community. Yeah. Why don't you tell the listeners about these in case they want to get connected? Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Jeff. The, the wild man experience for me was that I loved what we did. I loved being a ranger. I loved being in helicopters. I love shooting guns. I love running around. I love doing those things. And so I said, well, how could I, and you probably hear this too, is a lot of men are like, oh, I wish I could have served. I wanted to, but I just, life circumstances yeah, changed. Definitely. It. And they have a lot of gratitude right. for the military. And I said, well, how can I give men an experience, the fun stuff that we did, not all the hard stuff, but the right. fun stuff. Yeah. Without getting shot at, yeah. you know, <laughs> but being able to do some cool stuff. Yes. Right. So how can I give them the cool stuff without all the hard things that we did? And then also interlace that with the development that I've done when I transitioned out. And so that's yeah. what I came up with was the wild man experience. And it's, it's an homage to Robert Bly and the iron John book where he talks about the wild man in all of us. And that wild man is that uh-huh. unadulterated, unadulterated, uh, uninfluenced man that was truly sovereign in himself before society took it all away from him. And so that wild man was what I came up with for it. Uh, because that, I loved that book and I loved that message in him, but I wanted to give men this fun environment, this really good, like hangout environment where we could also grow as men. And it wasn't about like football and like nachos. It was about, Hey man, what are you struggling with right now? How's life going? Right. How do you feel proud of yourself right now? How are you delivering your version of a man to your family? 
And it's having that real conversation while having a lot of fun. So there's the one where we shoot guns out of helicopters and moving cars. And All right. we run around a range and do these mini stress shoots where they, they have to run and shoot and all that stuff. And then uh, I take guys also up to Kodiak, Alaska, and we go deep sea fishing and all we right. climb mountains yeah. and we do meditation at the top of a mountain. And then we'll also go out in the rivers and, and do some uh, fly fishing and we'll go take a boat plane and see Kodiak bears. And so there's a lot of fun in there. But then again, we're having real conversations as men on top of yeah. all of that. So I created that for men to get there. And then the elite man community, the reason I created this was because, again, an homage to being a ranger and elite was that if we always yeah. put time, when we were rangers, we put time into our training so much that no matter what happened around us, we were so good at the fundamentals. That's why we, our fundamentals, our, our yeah. lowest level of training was so high, it surpassed everybody else. And... Uh. Yet as individual men, we forget that we also have to put that training into who we are personally every single day. And so everything that we do when we're reading books, when we're journaling, when we're meditating, these are elements of giving back to the man that we are so we can be elite in how we show up. It doesn't necessarily just mean being a professional football player or uh, uh -huh. an elite military yeah. operator. It also means being somebody who prides himself on building strong foundations in who he is every day interpersonally. And so that's why I created that because I know every man has the ability to do that if they're willing to give themselves the chance to just really hone in on those foundations and build a strong man every single day. So when everything goes to crap, they can still sit there as a strong man, knowing that they've trained to, to such a high standard that they're not going yeah. to be moved. And so that's what that's about. And when you got the fundamentals down straight, as you and I both know, then the big challenges of life, you're able to handle them no matter how um, obscure they are, no matter yeah. how uh, out of left field they come, because you've really got the most important things right. And all of the other stuff takes care of itself when you mm -hmm. get the fundamentals right, Absolutely. when you get the important stuff right. Absolutely. Hey, man, I'm really proud of the way that you have gone through this hard work and this journey to become the guy that you are today. It was a great honor to serve with you, Johnny, when we were in 2nd Ranger Battalion. But it's even more of an honor to see the guy that you become and the way that you're leading other guys now. Man, I'm very proud of what you're doing. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I appreciate that. I want to wrap this episode up, though. I want to give you a chance. There are guys that are driving and listening to this episode and they're thinking, man, he was talking about me today. Mm. Um, and my life's a mess and I'm on my third divorce. And the only thing that makes me sleep at night is the pills that I'm taking or the bottle that I'm drinking. And I hate myself and I don't like the guy that I'm looking at in the mirror. Would you wrap this episode up by just talking to that guy for a second? And obviously you and I can't fix all of their problems mm -hmm. in a couple of moments at the end of this episode, but can you give them just one piece of advice if they're staring in the mirror and they're saying, I don't like the guy that I'm looking at and I don't want to stay here, but I don't know what to do next. Yeah. So what would you say to that guy, Johnny? Well, again, I'd have to go back to my sergeant days and tell them compartmentalize, compartmentalize one foot in front of the other. Look at what you have in front of you and make one small step that is going to put you in the right direction. Whatever that win is All for right. you, whatever that win looks like for you, 
do that thing. It doesn't have to be monumental. It just needs to be something small. For me, it was the bodybuilding competition. That was small for me, but that yeah. helped me to compartmentalize my life. I didn't need to look at all the ways I was being a bad man or a negative man. I yeah. just looked at a win in front of me. So for every man out there, if this is you, if you're struggling with this, you know there's something more. You know that there's a lot of pain in your heart and you look at yourself in the mirror and you're struggling. Just give yourself one win, one small win and compartmentalize that win and allow that confidence to start surging back through you when you realize you accomplished right. that. Yeah, that is a great piece of advice. The guys that are listening that are saying, man, Johnny has a lot of great things to say. I want to hear more about this guy. Yeah. How do they learn more about you, about the podcast, about the um, wild man experience or elite man community? Yeah. So also, Jeff, I, I don't know if you know this, but I did actually just release my first book design the man within what Look yeah at this. i gotta All send right. you a copy tell everybody about the book tell everybody hey. where they can get the book this is well this is also a way that men can do things like if you're not comfortable with sharing or putting yourself in a community grab a book like this that can help you design the man within where it's like yeah. i give the tools for guys I, I share my journey i share the things that i experienced because i know that they're struggling with them because i did too and I give them tools on how I got out of this, on how I gave myself the ability to succeed. So um, All right. designthemanwithin.com is where you can find the book. And that's got the link to Amazon. And it's also available on Barnes and Nobles, Target, Walmart, everywhere. Um, that's yeah. where you can get the book. And the book is, is to really help guys kind of usher in this whole aspect of how do I start working on myself piece by piece? Because I know there's something more. Um, so I'll leave that there. Johnny. Uh, hold on just a second. Yeah. I didn't realize that you had a book out there. I tell you what we're going to do, man. I want somebody who's, who's listening to get that book for free. So we're going to, at the end of this episode, I'm going to tell you how I'll give you a copy of Johnny's book, what you need to do in order to get a free copy of it. But tell everybody a little uh, bit more about how to connect with you on your podcast or the wild man experience. I appreciate that, Jeff. Yes. And that's amazing. I really am grateful for you doing that. Um, and yeah, you guys yeah. can hook up with me at johnnylsasser.com, which is J-O-H-N-N-Y and then E-L-S-A-S-S-E-R. From there, there's everything. My wild man experience, my podcast, uh, the elite man community is available there. That's the one-stop shop for everything. So make sure you guys head over there if you want to connect All right. and uh, see what I have going on. So, And then from there, there's also the email list that you can subscribe to where we share a lot of a lot of uh, free content comes out through the email. And then obviously you'll see anything that yeah. I have up and coming as far as events and things like that, that we're putting together. And like always for the listener, if you're driving and you didn't get to catch that, don't worry about it. We're going to put the links in the notes to this episode and let you know how you can get connected with his website. We'll also put a link to his book, mm -hmm. um, the, the link for the book in the notes to this episode too. Man, Johnny, um, thank your wife for being <laughs> such an amazing influence on you. Yeah. But thank you for coming and pouring into the listeners on this episode of Unbeatable. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me on and, and truly grateful for your support and also to have served with you. Yeah. yeah, you too. See you around. Hey, guys, you just heard a great piece of advice. If you're sitting there and you're looking in the mirror and you don't like the guy or the gal that's looking back at you, Remember what Johnny said, if you do nothing, nothing changes. And maybe you're not sure how to 
fix all of the problems and make all of the difficulties go away. But his brilliant advice is just do one small thing today. And when you've had that small win, start working on another thing tomorrow. And when you get a small win there, start working on another thing the next day. And pretty soon, you start to become a very different person. Man, I am so proud of what Johnny said and how he has rebuilt himself, recreated the man that he was now that he's back from combat. I want you to check out his book. I'm so impressed by the fact that he's written a book that I told you we're gonna give one away. All you gotta do to get a copy of his book is become part of the Unbeatable Army. One of the listeners in the Unbeatable Army is gonna get a free digital copy of Johnny's book, Designing the Man Within, free. And if you're not part of the Unbeatable Army, it's totally free. This community where we deliver content to you all week long. In order to become part of the Unbeatable Army, just go over to unbeatablearmy.com. Now, if you want to know more about Johnny, just check out the links on this episode in the notes to his website and learn more about his podcast and about the experience that he's created for men. But if you want to know more about this podcast, why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media? And if you just stumbled across this and you really like what you heard today, we have lots of guests that are just as incredible as Johnny. And why don't you go ahead and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. We've got some very faithful, very loyal fans that are just knocking it out of the park, letting other people know about this podcast. And the fan for this week is Rob Breland. Rob Thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for being so connected. Thank you for letting other people know how much of a difference the Unbeatable Podcast is making in your life. Guys, thanks for joining me this week. And I'll see you right back here. Same time, same place next week. God bless. 